This scenic beauty constitutes one of our nation's great resources, the heritage of natural splendor, which we must preserve for those who come after us. help conserve another vital natural resource, we are also constantly developing more efficient methods to mine and process our mineral-bearing ores. When it comes to the conservation of most natural resources, we are a responsible people. We want to conserve our natural wealth. We cannot leave to the generations who will follow us an empty and wasted land. Hello and welcome to another edition of Citizen Reporter. I'm your host, Mark Fonseca Renderu, and you have found the podcast that is all about human stories, struggles that teach us something about ourselves, how we got here, why things are the way they are. I'm sure many of you wonder that these days more than ever in this 2017 reality where, well, Certain news stories dominate, and generally there's a, a dour, negative view of the future and maybe even the present. Today, on this very program, we're going back to India. Oh yeah, it's the South of Mumbai series. We're in the state of Karnataka, and the city is Mangalore. The guest is the great architect and activist, Niren Jain. He did something amazing, and in many ways, perhaps he still is. He, and not alone, and a group of people who were passionate about the environment, who took action, and this is the story of their, I'm going to say, success, and also their struggle, because in a way, these stories do never really end, but uh, it's an amazing, there have been amazing chapters. So we visited Nidenjain in his home, which is also his office, a beautiful building. He is an architect, after all. A beautiful, beautiful building, which it was so wonderful to visit. And then we sat down and started with his story of from how he first started with his love of the environment and, and what that, how that impacted him to eventually the story of Kudrumuk, the national park, this massive tract of land in multiple states, including Karnataka. Let's go to the interview and I'm going to jump in here and just explain where it went. But to begin with, we went for that classic question of, yeah, how did you, Nidenjain, and the environment, how did that connection, that love, how did it start? Hi, I'm uh, Niren Jain. I'm a practicing architect in Mangalore. That's uh, southwest coast of uh, India. Uh, and I've been active in wildlife conservation for the last uh, 15 years now. Uh, so uh, uh, one of the reasons I'm in Mangalore and not in any other metro is that uh, within an hour I can reach about six to 7,000 square kilometer of uh, Western Ghats. So Mangalore being the center, I can cover a huge range within an hour's distance. So that's just like a day trip and I can cover a whole lot of places. That's one of the main reasons why I'm still here in my native of uh, Mangalore. 
My mother is uh, from a place called Bajagoli, which is the foothills of Kudremok. You might have passed uh, when you're coming from there. So uh, we used to adore these hills when we were when we were very small, jumping in the fresh water streams. And uh, I always had a desire to climb up those mountains. But when we were small, uh, our families are not very explorative here. Uh, they don't want you to go out and they feel that some very isolated, very scary places. So I always wanted to... Uh, wanted to visit them uh, but uh, I got that opportunity only later uh, after my high school days uh, so in my imagination whenever we heard of Western Guards we thought I, I thought at least that these were such a big forest that even if you walk for 10 days you can't come out from the other end but once you actually started trekking you realize the entire Western Guards anywhere in Western Guards it's a day's march. You come out of the other place or you come out to a settlement. And that really shocked me. I never thought it was, it was, uh, it had shrunk so much and we had so little left. Uh, and uh, beyond that, I think it's uh, these, uh, the inspiration by D.V. Girish, who was working in Chikmangalore and Badra Wildlife Sanctuary. Uh, we have a very, uh, very closed uh, opinion about trying to work on such public issues. I mean, most of people whom we know, they think government is something that's alien, you can't really work. The forest department is something totally uh, different. There's no way that you could try and change things on ground. But when I saw him work, I, I mean, even though it looked hopeless, but I thought it was trying. He was trying and probably doing some difference and I was not doing anything. So that really inspired me to try and at least try and do something. Now here, as we gradually move towards talking about this Kudramuk National Park, and, and indeed he's already begun to mention the people involved, there's also this element that I want to make sure listeners understand, and that is the big difference in what a national park is, how it works. For example, I've grown up in the United States, maybe you listening are in Germany or the Netherlands. And to my understanding, one thing we all have in common is these national parks where one th option is to go there, to enjoy it. It's for people. And then, of course, there's the other option of preserving and uh, not allowing that land to be spoiled or damaged. India, I've learned, and... Uh, Niren will explain, but India has a different approach to national parks, and it's one that we encountered where, for example, we have to uh, write the time that we arrive, it has to be recorded, and we have to be out of there within, I think it was two hours, or, or, or is it four hours, whatever it is, it's a very controlled amount of time, and what you can do while you're there is even controlled, where you can go, you might only be able to stay on the main road on a certain day, or depending on what's going on. So there is a big difference here that Niren will explain. Yeah, um, unlike uh, the... Uh term national parks that is uh, applied in right. US, those are parks meant for people's usage, mainly. People are kind of encouraged to go and see there. Whereas uh, uh, in India, national parks hardly comprise about less than 2% of in total, uh, uh, two, less than 2% of the whole country. So that's very minuscule. And uh, even within that, we allow people to go in and go all over the place. Uh, in fact, before those rules, in fact, we kind of encourage the forest department to 
there was no gate also there so we encouraged the forest department to put that gate on the boundaries and also have restrictions for people going because every weekend you would see hundreds of cars on the road everybody going with their beer bottles playing loud music throwing the trash and it was it was a nightmare that time so in fact we encouraged the forest department why don't we do this so that people don't stay there whoever wants to visit they'll have to go to the rainforest officer take a permission go with a guide so that they get monitored as to so that they don't throw see if everybody is cultured and they behave nicely there's no problem but sadly 99% of the people who visit these whether you give them an amusement park or a national park it wouldn't matter there's just a outing for them and <laughs> that's a sad part if everybody sensitive probably these rules need not be so strict so this is one element the the differentiation between what a national park is and how it works from perhaps your part of the world, whoever you are, listener, to uh, what is going on in Karnataka and in India. Uh, the other element that I wanted to lay out before we get into the full story, which is just ahead, uh, is this element of, you know, why, why is this national park so special? It's large, uh, but as as uh, Niren points out, it's not so large, it's just large. But then there's this element of what and who lives in it and the the wildlife the 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 species of plants uh, and and its function also is quite important so this is just uh, a thing here on the biodiversity of kudramukh which is significant uh, kudramukh uh, it's a very i mean not not too many parts of the western ghats state studied very intensively for biodiversity and other wildlife in fact one of the first studies was done by dr karant itself when they were climb, claiming the lion-tailed macaques, which is highly endangered, and there's probably less than 3,000 monkeys left in the wild, they said majority of them, or the most, the biggest population is in Kerala, the Silent Valley part of it. But uh, he took up a study in 1984, uh, and he surveyed the entire uh, North Karnataka and, and these areas. He found Kudremukh had one of the largest uh, troops and a very sustained uh, uh, breeding population of lion-tailed macaques. And he followed up on his study and later on in 1987, he uh, pushed the government to declare that as a national park. So, and he was also telling stories in terms of how small their group was when the mining started. And uh, uh, the Silent Valley, which is just 90 square kilometers, uh, at the same time had the hydroelectric power project proposal that time and a whole lot of wildlife enthusiasts and uh, including uh, uh, Salim Ali who is an ornithologist and a very well-known uh, 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 wildlife biologist to uh, he convinced the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi to abandon the hydroelectric project in Silent Valley but this kind of went by default that time it was I was hearing from my other seniors who were involved in the campaign like Purna Chandra Tejasvi, uh, he's no longer there. But he was telling that time it was a, it was declared as an emergency, and they couldn't really protest and do any campaign at that time. And this went by default, yeah. but a Silent Valley got saved. And later on, when they were doing an environment impact assessment of Kudremukh, they found that the biodiversity here, including vegetation diversity and other characteristics, were much higher than Silent Valley. But nobody did the study and nobody knew about it. So it kind of stands. And now it's about 1,200 square kilometers, which is including Kudramukh National Park and Someshu Wildlife Sanctuary. It all comes as a compact block. 
It's almost 1,200 square kilometers. That's one of the largest protected area in the entire Western Ghats. So it's very important in terms of its function for the environment, but also as a habitat for uh, species that can't be found anywhere else, especially, you know, with what's going on in India with the development and the the cities getting larger and so forth. Uh, The other thing that's very unique, I would say, is that with the story of Kudramuk National Park, you have it becoming a national park in 1987. And then we'll, we'll talk about these dates again. 1987, it becomes a national park. But, and here's something you won't hear in a lot of countries, back in the 60s, it actually was uh, a, a location for mining. Actually, it started as a place for iron ore iron ore mining. So here we have this very environmentally important place, but it also has resources. And before it's even preserved officially, uh, long before, decades before, it is first uh, used, at least one section of it, as a source of mining minerals. In uh, 1967, the mining, uh, they, had, they were given a 90, I mean, 30 year lease for the mining. And that time, ni- 1967, mm-hmm. they were given a lease to mine. It was a public sector undertaking uh, by the government of India. So they started uh, exploring and uh, the lease was given in 1967 for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the national park was declared much later in 1987. Mm-hmm. So there was a 10-year overlap. Uh, so 1967 to 97, the lease ended. So in 1987, the national park was declared. So uh, and the, once the lease ended, they had also exhausted the ore they were mining in that particular area, and they wanted to expand to the neighboring hills. Mm. Uh, and the government of India, as well as the state government, had uh, had initiated process and correspondence to start denotifying those areas where they want to mine denotifying it as an from the status of national park huh. so, they so that so parks. that they can enable expansion of the mining uh-huh. so that's when we realized uh, the present mining is in the catchment area of badra river and and if you can imagine we are on the almost on the west coast and the badra river originates here in the west coast mm-hmm. it goes all the way east and it goes to the eastern coast which means you're mining right at the origin of River Badra. So the expansion area where they were asking for is another uh, tributary. It's called the Tunga. So the the origin of Tunga River also would have been damaged if those areas were denotified from the status of National Park and uh, mining would have expanded to those areas. So that's when we realized that we can't keep quiet about this and we need to start something more serious in our campaign. One of the interesting elements that I even referred to in the beginning of this program is that when you think about campaigns that take on a mining company, which are often very powerful in terms of their connections and their their resources, <laughs> resources. but it, it, when it comes to a campaign that also involves taking on the government, amazingly, this battle uh, that Niden was involved in was not carried out by a mass movement of uh, thousands and millions, but actually it was by a group, a small, relatively small group of active and committed individuals, each one of them with their own specialty in many ways, that 
made a difference. Still, it is, I would say, uh, especially in wildlife, uh, you, it is still a very small community uh, who are really fighting for the core values in wildlife. There are a whole lot of other environmental activists and environmental group that is working, which is much larger. But if you look at wildlife, you would know by people by names and uh, you would know who's where and what are they working on, what are their strengths and things like that. It's a lot more close-knit group in spite of we being such a huge population. Yeah. So that way, I think uh, the networking uh, was effective, very effective. And I wouldn't say everybody in the government, everybody in the forest department had encouraged this. It was, it was the timing of those particular people being there, we being there. In fact, probably my timing also that I decided to take off full time in working in conservation at that particular time. Right now, I'm not working full time. I'm kind of putting in part, part of my time. Yeah. in conservation. So a whole lot of things factored in and, and we took it forward. In 2002, the battle that had been led by the NGO Wildlife First got a ruling from the Supreme Court that said the mine must be closed by December 2005, stating, quote, by destroying nature, environment, man is committing matricide, having in a way killed Mother Earth. Technological Excellence, growth of industries, economical gains have led to the depletion of natural resources irreversibly. Indifference to the grave consequences, lack of concern and foresight have contributed in large measures to the alarming position. In the case at hand, the alleged victim is the flora and fauna in and around Kudramukh National Park, a part of the Western Ghats. The forests in the area are among 18 internationally recognized hotspots for biodiversity conservation in the world. Unquote. Yeah, we, uh, we were quite thrilled uh, once we got the Supreme Court judgment, but uh, the tasks, I mean, the mining stopped. Uh, they said uh, they, they need to phase down mining within uh, uh, five years. That was, uh, so they did stop the mining in 2005. So uh, after that, they uh, continue to still hold the buildings there and uh, there are some uh, very small number of staff who are still present there. And, uh, uh, but, but in these, so it's been 10 years since 2005 to 2015 and there's a big vacuum there. So once a big company goes, a whole lot of other people lying into that township and a lot of people were interested to set up a resort there and come in as other players. So uh, recently we also approached a high court to stop prevent that from happening because the mining company had given a on a sublease when they themselves didn't have a lease with the government. Mm-hmm. They gave it on a sublease because they were uh, informally holding those buildings till they handed over to the government to another entity to run a tourism resort. And they started claiming that it is their land, not the government land. So again, we had to go to the court. And uh, finally, we've got the order clearly stating that uh, it is a government land and it needs to be handed over to the government and the company cannot perpetually hold it. This land of ours, this inspiring resource of beauty and space, is a fountainhead from which we draw new energy and enthusiasm for the tasks that lie ahead. This would be the moment in the story where you say, well, wow, you know, something tangible 
and good came from this struggle. The mining was stopped, the Supreme Court ruled it. But before long, things would take yet another turn. And this time it was the very system that the group had been using to try and preserve and protect the park. That system gets turned against them. So after we won the mining battle, uh, in uh, they were, the the mining company went on a uh, went on a second appeal against that order, and uh, at, I mean we we were kind of looking at it that okay it's going to close and dates are coming closer, and uh, there were officers shifted in the forest department and and uh, there were some. Uh, so there was a kind of a backlash. We thought, okay, everything is going on very smoothly and we did such a big campaign and we were successful in it and uh, this is great. But awesome. later on, later on, as, as uh, people changed within the system, uh, they started coming back on us. Uh, luckily, the order was in place. So, but they had gone on an appeal and they thought uh, they, thought they could somehow uh, get across in the appeal stage. So the, the forest department itself, whom we were working so closely earlier, as, as immediately as, as the officers changed, they came back behind us instead of the mining company, which had encroached 3.4 square kilometers. And they were coming behind us telling you had encroached three years back. Uh, you, had, you had trespassed into the national park without permission three years back. And they filed 14 criminal cases on us in all those four courts where you took a long journey, coming back, one in Sringeri, one in Karkala, one in uh, Mudgere, and one in Beltangiri. And because the park is so big, you have so many di different jurisdictions, so that would make us run around year-round in all these courts. And then we it was a huge eight-year-long, very exhaustive battle in the high court to kind of prove ourselves that... that these officers had malefied intention and we got an order telling that it was malefied actions by these officers and they had come to my office raided my uh, seized my laptop and took all the information that we had planned and strategized to fight against this mining company and uh, so it it was pretty bad times that time and uh, Probably I was also uh, very young and very hot-blooded that time. Uh, probably ignorant of our real strengths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but we, we got through it. Not to spend too much time going backwards here. I know you're, you're listening. But this last part where Niren says, yeah, the, the police came and raided my offices and, and took computers and looked for documents, looking for evidence to use against him. And even what he mentioned before about uh, there were people in the forestry department that invented uh, moments in history in the past where he had broken rules. So w myself, together with our, our colleagues while visiting Karnataka, we went to Kudramukh, of course, before this interview. And indeed, I noticed, as we mentioned before, that the difference with the way the park works. And when you get to this entrance of any any entrance of the park, there's someone who sort of writes down what time you came in, might even give you a, a little piece of paper that says it. And then even though you're in that park for uh, the hour or two that you are, when you come out, 
you're supposed to, again, see a guard, and that guard is going to write down when you left. Now, officially, legally, again, as Niden has tried to explain, you are supposed to be out within the allotted time, and if you're not, you could get fined. That is the breaking of a law. So here is something so routine in many ways that we got to experience that could, it's hard to imagine, but it happened, be used against you where the forestry department produces a bunch of records that show that you checked in, went into the park, and didn't come out for many hours, maybe even days, which is illegal. So therefore here, retroactively, you're in trouble, either with fines or worse. Uh, this is just one example of when the system started to get used uh, against Niren. Now, uh, at this point in the story, you know, I really started thinking about uh, what I've learned over the years when it comes to India. Of course, not enough, not much compared to what you know if you live it, if you're there, especially working on this issue. But at one point I asked Niren because I remember uh, from school, university, where I, I did some classes on Indian politics, I, I read my books, my Arundhati Roy, uh, even my Gandhi to a certain extent. And what it seemed like, especially with Arundhati Roy and the 90s when I was in school, was that in India, what was happening was there were all these big projects for water, um, dams, energy, resources, and these projects would push and displace whomever whenever. It didn't matter if hundreds or thousands of people lost their homes or were hurt. It was all about the infrastructure projects and the power and the will of the government. So I, I asked uh, Niren, you know, if in this context, now 2017, compared to the 90s when all this stuff was going on with the dams, if that maybe nowadays you have a lot more tools and a lot more power to, uh, I'll say, fight or at least be active for a cause when it comes to the environment. And to my great surprise, he didn't say, oh, it's a better time. It's, it's probably got worse. Huh. Because uh, uh, it's mainly because of the economic condition of the country. We have more power to spend. We have more capacity to do, get things done compared to when we didn't have, when our economic situation was not very good. We mm. couldn't even think of such large scale projects. So now infrastructure is very big time and they're weakening a whole lot of forest conservation laws to encourage and enable these things. Uh, earlier, I think uh, they were, when you talk about wildlife, I think including, uh, what I would say is uh, including Indira Gandhi and uh, Rajiv Gandhi, they were a lot more sensitive to uh, wildlife in nature. And uh, so the Project Tiger itself were a whole lot of, Tiger reserves were established, and there was a system English, established. Which era was that? The uh, it's, uh, I think it's uh, 1970, oh, okay. uh, beginning of 1970s. So uh, they established a whole lot of uh, series of tiger reserves, and there was a, a specific funding for these areas, and a lot of areas were well protected, and at least the intention was there to, to uh, by the government to kind of focus on these areas and protect them. But today those things are being diluted more and more. This might be the point in the program as we wind down uh, the story that you'd expect a, a resolution, right? A happy ending where you say, 
okay, there was this setback and, and it's been hard, but here's what we've been able to achieve. And indeed, we have mentioned some of the achievements. But the truth about this story that I'm presenting to you is that it is not over. There is no happy ending. It's ongoing. It is a struggle that continues. Now, one thing I did get to speak with, with uh, Niden, was the larger, even larger picture, from a large picture when it comes to national parks, to the larger picture of the relationship between people and the environment in India, and what's going on when it comes to cities getting bigger, or what's known as urbanization. Um, and actually, I usually say rural to urban, this struggle, this movement, and Niren puts it differently. He talks about remote areas versus villages versus cities, and what's going on with that. So I think it would be a lot more uh, relevant in India with such a huge population and uh, people are all over the place. Like I said, there is, there is no forest that I wouldn't... I, I, I would come out to any settlement within a day's march. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's people all over the place. But today, when we talk to people who are re living in really remote areas... So I call this remote, which is different than village. So... India, the whole country would be a village because it's, you have villages all over the place. Whereas the remote areas are a lot more isolated. When I say remote, it would mean about uh, a walk for seven kilometers in the forest without any house in between. I would say that is remote. For, for some other people in US, remote would mean even more deeper than that. <laughs> so when I say remote in India, I'm talking of about seven kilometers of uh, walk without any road access, without electricity, without anything. So when we speak to such people, uh, especially most of them are sending their children to school, either either they walk or they leave them in their relatives place or in some hostels. And uh, the verses, uh, most of them are growing uh, cash crops like arachnid and uh, a whole lot of other things. Uh, it's not rice. Mm -hmm. Rice is not the major crop that they grow, even in the remote areas. So they need to take these crops on headloads, carrying seven kilometers on headload, and then putting it onto some transport, and then taking it to the closest market. And that's a huge task. And uh, I was trying to understand, do some study on these remote areas for my master's recently, uh, in terms of how much manners do they put in compared to people who would be living just outside these means seven kilometers where uh, public conveyance is available uh, electricity is available hospitals are close by schools are close by so the manners the people put in remote areas is like far 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 more so it's all day work all, all day they, they just have no time for anything uh, so finally they save comparatively little compared to if they would have been seven kilometers in the places where all these amenities, basic amenities are available. Mm. So that, uh, and when we spoke to them, the problem is it's like a trap. There's nobody who would buy that land, even if he's legally legal owner of that land, nobody would want to buy that land seven kilometers deep inside the forest and would start wanting to live there. So he can't dispose his agricultural property. That's one. Secondly, even if he, there was a buyer, it would be very, very uh, cheap. At the same, uh, with the same money, he won't be able to buy equivalent extent of land just outside the forest. Mm. 
So uh, I kind of termed that as a special poverty trap. <laughs> they're, they're trapped in these uh, uh, small uh, settlements without any help or uh, uh, help for uh, transition to an area. I'm not telling they need to, uh, they, they have aspirations to go to the city. They just want to come to places where there are these basic amenities like road yeah. and school. So they're not even able to uh, do that because they cannot find a buyer who would pay them that much. Mm. At the same time, uh, so right now, I think uh, our region, at least uh, my district, is in that transition. When we speak to, uh, I don't have the statistics though, but when we speak to people living in the villages, I hear more than 70% of the households, they don't have their children living with them. They're all old people and and uh, they're off, um, the, the youngsters are all migrated to the city and they're left with this big land and we have a huge labor problem in this region. Compared to other areas, it's a lot more severe in this region. You don't have any uh, laborers available and these are all agricultural areas where you need a lot of labor to maintain it and sustain it and people are getting old and they're no longer able to sustain it. So uh, people are disposing of their agricultural property quite a bit. And uh, so whom do they sell it to is a question. Uh, at the same time, probably Karnataka has an, ha, had an advantage till now because non-agriculturists could not, cannot buy agricultural property. So, in terms of buyers, it's very limited. Only agriculturists can buy agricultural property uh, compared to other states where anybody can buy agricultural property. So, you still have these lot of green, natural, I mean, comparatively natural areas without any uh, big uh, corporates coming in and doing uh, these large agricultural farming and destroying even more. Mm. But uh, that's we're probably in a transition phase. I don't know when government will let non-agriculturists buy land and that time it the big wave will come so actually so uh, if if we strategically think about it it's a it's a window of time where we can really uh, take advantage of the situation and try to consolidate as much as possible for nature it's a big, big window now, but uh, I don't know how many of them see it. Uh, we're hoping the government government can see it, but un we need to do a lot more studies and present it in a proper form for the government to take some decisions on that. Mm -hmm. But sadly, that's a, a long way to go. And uh, But I think it's worth, worth uh, putting it in perspective to the government. A window of opportunity that may not be taken or even recognized by the people in power. Surely something that wherever you live, you've probably felt at some point or another as well, similar in Karnataka. Now, at the end here, I asked Niden what the focus should be. He's an architect, uh, also a conservationist in, in many ways. Uh, some say, indeed, you know, conserving and making things sustainably and uh, that kind of thing, technology, that's the road you got to take for a better future and a better environment. On the other hand, uh, of course, Niden has been telling us about the whole thing of taking action. You yourself, standing, moving, uh, doing. So which one is it for the future of India? I had this big, when I was in college doing architecture, I thought energy efficiency and that is what I was focused on. That is what my passion was. 
And we were uh, doing, I mean, we're trying to do a lot of energy efficient buildings. Even today, I try to do that. But uh, I realized uh, by the time it reaches these uh, forests, I think it would be gone much before that. <laughs> uh, the slow, sustainable processes—it uh, would take forever. And before that, these forests would be cut down, and uh, it would be gone. I don't think it would reach it so quickly. So that's why I thought, unless we do direct interventions and at the field itself, rather than trying to change people here, and uh, that would probably take several hundreds oh, yeah. of years. Uh, we need to have some areas where you need direct interventions and protect it. And these slow sustainable changes is needed, but it's much slower and the process will go on. But it won't stop these, uh, the, the core areas and the beautiful evergreen forests from being cut uh, at the short term. But, but sadly, most of the environmentalists, they advocate only the sustainable development, only the sustainable uh, uh, movement and environmentalism, which I don't believe. I don't believe that is going to reach these forests so quickly, and and the quick the enough. quick enough because it's going to go uh, within 10, 20 years uh, if we don't do if we don't do direct intervention. And they are advocating against that, uh, whereas I don't believe that. I I believe we need both. We need direct interventions to save these with the system, with the with the government mechanism itself. Finally, it, it is. It is we. I mean, the government is us. I mean, a lot of, lot of organizations alienate the government totally in telling that, blaming everything on the government. But government is a, a reflection of people. So uh, we do believe that. In spite of, there are good and bad people in the government. That's always there, like in any society. So we need to work constructively with them for these. At the same time, we need to uh, look at our own consumption levels. Uh, and get it down to a sustainable level, but that's for a much longer, probably a few centuries. <laughs> Nirain Jain is an architect based in Mangalore, Karnataka. You can see his work, and I strongly suggest you have a look at njarchitect.wordpress.com. And that about does it for this week's program. Our theme music was by the great Nick Aflito. Uh, songs on this podcast were also by V. Nessie and Jonas78, both published and available on the Free Music Archive, my favorite place, published under CC licenses, as is this program. And a big thank you to my producer for this one. Uh, that's Chinmai. Thank you so much. And yeah, indeed, you know, I'm back from India, but India is still very present. The series continues because I recorded all these different interviews about all these different topics, and I really want to share them. So if you don't mind, a little more India as we push forth into 2017. Maybe it's good for all of us anyway to hear something other than uh, from that orange-colored president. All right, that's it for the program. Citizenreporter.org is where the rest of the series can be found. And hey, if you've got the time, head on over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And yes, yes, write a review. Why do podcasters always talk about this? Unfortunately, because this is the way that you get uh, a little more profile, a little more found. And that is part of this whole process, the idea that people are listening and we're sharing in this experience, even if at this very moment... 
Uh, I don't hear your voice. I'll hear it later once I press publish. All right, that's it. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca-Renderu. Take care. Thanks for listening. See ya. We hold this land in trust, a trust we dare not carelessly betray. Our great scenic splendors are one of our most vital resources, deserving of devoted care and protection. The challenge is so great, and the solution so simple. Let's not fail. Let's not fail. Let's not fail. fail. We and all the generations of the long future will be rewarded with endless enjoyment and renewed inspiration. So that yeah, what's the sound? Tell us. I'll record you, it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's a garbage collection. They announced that uh, you need to separate the wet garbage and the dry garbage, and that they're coming to pick it up. Okay. <laughs> and this recording is always playing. Or, or, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's a garbage truck coming. So they'll come here. It'll get even louder. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. oh, okay. <laughs>